Hello, this is Bob Edwards. Helga is away and unable to be here today. I'll be reading Genesis chapter 37 from the Good News Translation of the Bible, today's English version, beginning at verse 1. Jacob continued to live in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived, and this is the story of Jacob's family. Joseph, a young man of 17, took care of the sheep and goats with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's concubines. He brought bad reports to his father about what his brothers were doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than all his other sons, because he had been born to him when he was old. He made a long robe with full sleeves for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than he loved them, they hated their brother so much that they would not speak to him in a friendly manner. One time, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. He said, Listen to the dream I had. We were all in the field, tying up sheaves of wheat, when my sheaf got up and stood up straight. Yours formed a circle around mine and bowed down to it. Do you think you are going to be a king and rule over us? His brothers asked. So they hated him even more because of his dreams and because of what he said about them. Then Joseph had another dream and told his brothers. I had another dream in which I saw the sun, the moon, and eleven stars bowing down to me. He also told the dream to his father, and his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that? Do you think that your mother, your brothers, and I are going to come and bow down to you? Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept thinking about the whole matter. One day, when Joseph's brothers had gone to Shechem to take care of their father's flock, Jacob said to Joseph, I want you to go to Shechem, where your brothers are taking care of the flock. Joseph answered, I am ready. His father told him, Go and see if your brothers are safe, and if the flock is all right, then come back and tell me. So his father sent him on his way from Hebron Valley. Joseph arrived at Shechem and was wandering around in the country when a man saw him and asked, What are you looking for? I am looking for my brothers, who are taking care of their flock, he answered. Can you tell me where they are? The man said, They have already left. I heard them say that they were going to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted against him and decided to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes that dreamer. Come on now, let's kill him and throw his body into one of the dry wells. We can say that a wild animal killed him. Then we will see what becomes of his dreams. Reuben heard them and tried to save Joseph. Let's not kill him, he said. Just throw him into this well in the wilderness, but don't hurt him. He said this, planning to save him from them and send him back to his father. When Joseph came up to his brothers, they ripped off his long robe with full sleeves. Then they took him and threw him into the well, which was dry. While they were eating, they suddenly saw a group of Ishmaelites traveling from Gilead to Egypt. Their camels were loaded with spices and resins. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain by killing our brother and covering up the murder? Let's sell him to these Ishmaelites. Then we won't have to hurt him. After all, 
He is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. And when some Midianite traders came by, the brothers pulled Joseph out of the well and sold him for twenty pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben came back to the well and found that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes in sorrow. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. What am I going to do? Then they killed a goat and dipped Joseph's robe in its blood. They took the robe to their father and said, We found this. Does it belong to your son? He recognized it and said, Yes, it is his. Some wild animal has killed him. My son Joseph has been torn to pieces. Jacob tore his clothes in sorrow and put on sackcloth. He mourned for his son a long time. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, I will go down to the world of the dead, still mourning for my son. So he continued to mourn for his son Joseph. Meanwhile, in Egypt, the Midianites had sold Joseph to Potiphar, one of the king's officers, who was the captain of the palace guard. Here ends our reading of Genesis chapter 37. Many may be familiar with the story of Joseph and his famous coat of many colors. Reflecting the Hebrew language of the passage, the Good News translation describes his coat as being long-sleeved. In the Greek Septuagint, an Aramaic Targum of Onkelos, Joseph's coat is described as having many colors, or varying patterns of embroidery. Regardless of the exact translation, the point of the passage is the same. Joseph was given a distinctive coat by a father who favored him over his brothers. If we recall earlier chapters in Genesis, we can see some of the possible motivating factors behind this favoritism. Jacob had many wives and concubines. His favorite wife was Rachel, and her firstborn son was Joseph, to whom she gave birth after a period of infertility. Just prior to Genesis chapter 37, we read that Rachel had died, giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. Joseph's brothers knew he was favored, and they resented him for this. This favoritism, rivalry, jealousy, and strife all stemmed from Jacob's practice of polygamy. Relational troubles associated with the long-standing ancient custom of men having more than one wife may shed some light on the context of the Apostle Paul's instructions in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In this chapter of the New Testament, Paul says that male elders and deacons in the church must be the husband of one wife. Since Paul specifically addresses male leaders in this passage, some patriarchal theologians have inferred that deacons and elders must be men. Some English translations, like the New American Standard Bible and the New Living Translation, for example, even add words to such passages stating explicitly that elders or deacons must be men. This type of gender-specific language cannot be found in any Greek manuscripts of the Bible whatsoever. In fact, the New Testament identifies one woman, Phoebe, as both a leader and deacon in the Church of Sancreia. She is described in these terms in Greek manuscripts of Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. Church history 
demonstrates that many women were recognized as elders until the Church of Rome began to officially exclude women from such roles beginning around the 4th century AD. So why might Paul have addressed men specifically about the practice of having more than one wife? The oral traditions of two of the most prominent schools of rabbinical Judaism permitted men, and men only, to either have more than one wife at the same time or more than one wife in succession. The historical works of Flavius Josephus and Justin Martyr in the 1st and 2nd centuries AD demonstrate that polygamy was an ongoing practice for Jewish men in those centuries. These historical records have been supported by archaeological findings highlighted by New Testament scholar David Instone Brewer. He shared information from legal documents related to a middle-class Jewish family consisting of one husband and more than one wife. King Herod, who feared that a promised Messiah might replace him as king of Judea, was also famous for his polygamy. In Matthew chapter 19 verses 1 through 8, Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day who taught that men could divorce and remarry for any reason whatsoever, having many wives in succession. Telling men that they may not practice polygamy or divorce their wives for any and every reason is not the same thing as saying that only men can be leaders. Such a sexist interpretation of Paul's language ignores the context of the New Testament church and the numerous examples of female leaders we find in the Bible. These include Phoebe, whom we have already mentioned, as well as Junia the Apostle, Priscilla, who taught a man the way of God more accurately, and Paul's co-workers, Eodia and Syntyche. The Church of Rome was so bent on limiting the roles of women that some of its leaders even began to insist against all available historical evidence that Junia and Iodia were men. The NASB still refers to Junia as a man named Junius, and the King James Version still refers to Iodia as Iodius. In contrast to biased English translations, the Greek New Testament demonstrates that women were noted apostles, deacons, leaders, and even teachers of men. These New Testament examples follow the tradition of female leadership exemplified in the Old Testament by women like Deborah and Huldah, who are described as prophets, judges, and or rulers in Israel. To support the notion that leadership must be male, the Bible must both be altered and misinterpreted. Verses like Isaiah 3.12, which was originally a warning against dishonest creditors, have been altered in translation to make female leadership appear undesirable. 1 Timothy 2.12 is a prohibition against a woman engaged in false teaching. Paul refers to this false teaching specifically in 1 Timothy chapters 1, 4, and 6. Paul's focus was not on the sex of the teacher, but rather on the nature of the teaching. And in 1 Timothy 1 and 20, we even see that some of the false teachers were men. 1 Timothy was a letter written to the church in Ephesus. Priscilla taught a man the way of God more accurately in Ephesus, and she was commended by Paul for her efforts. Unfortunately, 
Too many men throughout church history have viewed the leadership of women not as an asset, but rather as a threat. Prominent 4th century theologian and Bible translator St. Jerome was so fearful of women that he moved to the desert to be away from them. He also claimed that God had placed women in a position of slavery to men as punishment for Eve's transgression in Eden. Men like this remind me of Joseph's brothers, who feared that someday he might hold a position of authority over them. They attempted to prevent this by selling their brother into slavery. Joseph's rise to power in Egypt, however, was prophesied by God. It would take place regardless of his brother's dishonorable intentions. The reason for Joseph's elevation, however, was not strictly for his own benefit. He would be chosen as a leader in Egypt so that millions of people, including his own family, could be preserved from death in a time of famine. It's a good thing that his brother's schemes to thwart God's plan did not succeed. If they had, they themselves would likely have starved to death. Similarly, God has issued the following prophecy concerning not just men, but women as well. Quote, this is what I will do in the last days, God says. I will pour out my spirit on everyone. Your sons and daughters will proclaim my message. Your young will see visions, and your old will have dreams. Yes, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will proclaim my message. I will perform miracles in the sky above, and wonders on the earth below. There will be blood, fire, and thick smoke. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will turn red as blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And then, whoever calls out to the Lord for help will be saved. Unquote. We find that prophecy in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. Sadly, many English translations of this prophecy specify that only young men will see visions while old men will have dreams. In the Greek New Testament, the language used here is gender inclusive. It's a good thing that despite the best laid plans of sinful men, God's prophecy will come true. God's message will be proclaimed by both women and men. And just as it was in the time of Joseph, as a result of God's intervention, many people will be saved.